Welcome to the Biffa Podcast, the show from the British Independent Film Awards that brings together two artists from the filmmaking community for a conversation about how film has shaped their lives. In this episode, actors Papa Esiedu and Lenny James explore the stories and cinemas that made them who they are. If you've been watching, well, loads of good TV over the last decade, then chances are you've seen Lenny. From beloved police procedural line of duty to undead adventures in The Walking Dead to Save Me, the disappearance drama that he created, wrote and starred in. But right now he's off the small screen and on stage, currently performing in A Number at the Old Vic. And Papa, who he's chatting to here, plays his son. Having established himself with performances in King Lear, Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, Papa's star rose considerably in 2020, with his remarkable performances in Gangs of London and Michaela Cole's groundbreaking series, I May Destroy You, in which he played Kwame. Most recently, though, he appeared in the short film Femme, which won the prize for Best British Short at this year's Biffers. In this episode of the podcast, recorded between performances of their play, Papa and Lenny explore how the hype around a cinema release has changed over the years, from queuing around the block to your Netflix queue, the difference between a Saturday morning picture and a Saturday night picture, and just how important films like Blade and Black Panther have been for black Londoners. Good morning, Lenny. Good morning, Papa. How are you? I'm very well. It feels odd seeing you in the morning times nowadays. Usually there's darkness around us or a theatre. We're nighttime combatants at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, we are there. Okay, so cinema. Yeah. What's your earliest memory of going to the cinema? Where was it? Growing up, I remember going to the cinema. It was a very, very, very special treat if we got to go to the cinema. I think there was only one cinema in our area i grew up in walthamstow and (laughs) had a bit of a reputation for certain folk frequenting it it was one of them ones where you could break into the the cinema through the back door which is a fire escape that's kind of hanging on by hinge so let's just say that people weren't necessarily always paying to go in but i think the first film i actually saw in the cinema was the flintstones film with oh my god i think that uh, i i I think it had john John goodman Goodman or mark Eddy. yeah john goodman oh my word so that must have been like 1995 or 94 or something like that and i remember being thrilled by it my uncle took me to see it and the idea of there being something that was like a tv but just supercharged massive (laughs) like 20 TVs on top of each other with the Flintstones on it. And the Flintstones weren't even cartoons anymore. They were real people for my tiny little brain. I remember that being a thrilling experience. And the Batman, I think it was Batman and Robin or Batman Forever. I can't remember. And I think that might have been like... Was it Clooney or was it it Clooney? It must have been Clooney. What's his name? O'Connell. Yeah. Obviously, when you're a kid, I was growing up in a household where cinema wasn't you know platform deified so who John Goodman was or who George Clooney was couldn't have been less interesting to me or to my mum or to <laughs> anyone I was going with who cares who that person is we're going to see so I mean it's kind of amazing because that suspension of disbelief is so complete that the actors aren't yeah. even actors they're not people they haven't got lives and families and independent worlds of their own. They're just the characters that are on the screen. So those are the two that really stuck in my memory. And I don't know whether that's something I should be like proud of or not, but my, <laughs> those are my two earliest memories. What were yours? Well, mine are very indicative, really, of when I grew up mm. and how I grew up. The first time I remember going to the cinema 
as a sense of we are going to the cinema was my mum took me and my brother to see The Ten Commandments. It was like a big MGM is that like, biblical... Is that like Charleston Heston or something like that? It wasn't. It was Burt Lancaster played Moses. Right. But it could just as easily have been Charlton Heston. Because yeah. I remember the second time I went to the cinema with my mum was to see Samson and Delilah because my mum was a big fan of Victor Mature who played Samson. It was because they were religious epics and I grew up in the Pentecostal church Mm. and used to go to church four times a week and part of the tenets of the Pentecostal church as it as it is in the bible and as Moses said is to his people you you're not allowed to bow down to any other god apart from the one true god and television and to a certain extent the cinema was seen as a false idol um, because it was drawing people to it people were sitting there and they were getting their information and their teachings and their morals and all of that from televisions and films so it was seen as a a false idol so consequently my mum who loved the movies and cinema when she would take us we she would just in order to balance out that she we were going to do this thing that the church wouldn't necessarily approve of we would go and see yeah biblical films and I saw them all and uh, I saw them in the in the cinema and I have to say Ten Commandments because it's got quite a few special effects you know he parts the water and he throws his staff on the floor and it turns into a snake (laughs) and I mean it's old school but it's got special effects I was wowed. How old were you at the time? I would have been about five or six, I would imagine. And it wasn't a current film. It was already an old film. It was the early days of colour. It was like a Technicolor thing. I think it probably had that big made in Technicolor thing at the beginning of it. Do you remember what the what the cinema you watched it in was like? Do you was there anything special about that cinema? I had a very long relationship with this particular cinema because it was the Stratomodian. Mm, that's still standing now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. There was the Stratum Odeon and then there was the Stratum ABC. I don't know which one of them came first, but they were both on the same roads. They were about maybe quarter of a mile between them. Also, when I was growing up, was the time of Saturday morning pictures, which is that they used to let kids into the pictures early on a Saturday morning. So from about half past eight in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, you could run to the cinema and you pay your, it was nominal amount of money, Mm. and they would have children's cinema there, like little shorts. And it was all stuff that was made years before us, black and white stuff. It would show episodes of The Lone Ranger that were all in black and white. I mean, even when I was watching them, they were already old, but they would show little Disney shorts. They would show... Just short things. So everything was 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something. It was Laurel and Hardy and all of that. It was just the old stuff. Even when I was watching it, it was 50 years old, 30 years old, something like that. But you would go and there was this thing called the Children's Film Foundation. And they would make films for kids about kids. Different situations. Some of them were warnings, don't go off with stranger type things. They all had a moral of teaching us something, but they would show those. And you could go into the cinema nine o'clock in the morning, come out at one o'clock in the afternoon and then head back home for Saturday lunch. Would all your mates and that be in there? Would it be like a social thing? Yeah, all of us would run in and we would do that thing that you were talking about is that one of us would pay and then run to the back and open the door and let everybody else in. (laughs) It was great. It was like the, uh, the opposite 
of later on when I was a teenager, they would do Saturday night pictures. So after they'd shown Star Wars or something like that, they would have Saturday night pictures where they would show old Kung Fu movies from China and Japan, the well-known ones, but obscure one. It's the first time I'd seen a film or sat through a film that had subtitles on it because I had no idea or really badly dubbed Kung Fu movies. And then it was a different set of of your mates who you were letting in through the door and you were up to a whole different kind of mischief. <laughs> How early do you remember in your mind demarcating the difference between the experience of watching a film on television and the experience of watching it in a cinema? When I was growing up, there was a very, very clear difference. If you wanted to see anything current, mm. if you wanted anything to see anything that was happening now, you had to go to the cinema. I mean, it certainly wasn't like it was now. I may well be misremembering this, but if a film came out today, back when I was growing up, if a film was coming out this Saturday, you probably wouldn't be able to see it on television for at least a year, if not more. Yeah. To be fair, I remember that. That's something that I think I only really clocked later on, the difference between those two things, because we wouldn't go to the cinema all the time. I remember being like, oh, God, I've got to wait two years to watch X, Y, or Z when it came out on ITV or when it came out on Channel 4 or whatever. In my house, there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of VHS copies of things that have been recorded off of TV. So my memory of watching pretty much any James Bond film or any film that came out in the 80s, 90s, Pretty Woman Coming to America, whatever, is watching that film with adverts in it. My main difference between watching a film at home and watching it in the cinema is I was like, oh, it's amazing. There's, there's no adverts in the film. You just watch the whole film in the cinema. There's nothing breaking it up. Whereas when I'm watching at home, it's always going to be interrupted with someone selling Uncle Ben's curry paste or Pampers, <laughs> nappies or whatever. I just thought that was part of the filmmaking experience. It was very weird because I remember very clearly going round to a friend's house and seeing the first, he was like the first one in our group of friends who had a VHS tape machine, putting it in and it was clunky. It was like it was made out of Meccano. Put it in, you push it down and we were all like, that's never going to catch on. How's that going to work? That's never going to make any sense to anybody. And I d- did that, recording things and seeing things off the table, but used to pass it around. Like it was contraband. Someone would go, I recorded this that thing last night and they'd pass it around. And there were some boys at school who were like the first video shops. They would record stuff and they would rent it to you. Yeah. It would cost you 20p or something and you could have it for the night, but you had to bring it back. If you didn't bring it back, then you got fined and everybody showed it when they were starting to get video machines. But yeah, it would. it took, I mean, there was a long time where if you wanted to see anything that was current. And so consequently, I have very firm memories of seeing films for the first time and going to the cinema to, to see them. I have very clear memories of seeing Close Encounters of the Third Kind and how long I was in the queue for, how long I was in the queue for Greece, how long I was in the queue for the first Star Wars film, the first Batman film, well, the Jack Nicholson Batman film. I find that so fascinating in terms of cinema as an event, in terms of what it can be in your free time, because it's slightly different now, even though cinema is still a huge thing, or and we hope it becomes, it, it comes back to like pre-pandemic levels, but the big things now are like big Marvel film comes out, or the James Bond film comes out, or Christopher Nolan, whatever, and people see it, but you don't have that same 
feeling of anticipation, queuing up to go and watch something. And the only way of talking about it is talking about it as opposed to reading the reviews or reading tweets or whatever. I'm really interested in that kind of era of 80s, whatever, the dawn of Spielberg, George Lucas, Scorsese in his prime that time, what it was like going to watch movies where movies were really movies at that time. What, what was that like? It was massive. And it was that sense of a shared experience. I have very visceral memories of seeing, for example, trading places. Because one of the big bootleg tapes, one of the tapes that everybody, pretty much everybody I know who, who saw it, first saw Eddie Murphy on a VHS. We all saw his one on a VHS because we'd already been used to seeing Richard Pryor on the VHS. So when he was going to be in a movie, I mean, I, I don't think there was a black person in the whole of South London who didn't find themselves in or queuing up outside a, a cinema to see that movie over that first two, three, four weekends. Mm. Everybody was there and it was loud. It was a, like a communal spirit. I think the only other one that was kind of like it for me and it was much more geeky was Blade. When Wesley Snipes did Blade, I was phoning up all of my mates kind of going, when we going? Yeah. When we going? We got booked, we got to get there, we got to be there, we got to you know, do that. So it was, it was big event and shared moments that everybody wanted to be yeah. together everybody wanted to be involved everybody wanted to be the person saying I saw it last night and having a conversation and if you hadn't seen it last night people were angry at you mm. people were like well I, I can't talk about it with you now yeah it was it was massive Greece like I think I said I mean they just all kept coming all the things that you wanted to see and people needed to see I mean, you would go back it became a big deal how many times you saw Trading Places, how many times you saw Blade, how many times you saw Grease, because you kept on having to get back in line mm. the next day, the next week to see it. It wasn't as simple as rewind and press play. Mm. You had to go through the whole queuing up and being there. And it was, a, it was like a badge to say, this is my seventh time of watching. I think one of my friends watched Star Wars something like 26 times. <laughs> Just kept on going back. And that wasn't, unusual. There's also the things of what films or cinema can do within communities. It's interesting you talk about every black person in South London is going to go and see Blade and you know that that's going to be talked about in barbershops, that's going to be talked about in churches, that's going to yeah. be talked about in community areas. I suppose contemporary parallel to that is when Black Panther came out and what that mm -hmm. and, and how that seemed to overreach the normal cultural boundaries of what a film can do and what it did within black communities both in America in this country and globally I, I thought was really interesting and like I, I've got very specific memories of watching that film I don't tend to go and watch films more than once at the cinema but I remember watching that film maybe three times or four times one of which I saw it in Peck and Plex which is an independent cinema in South London where I think you can still get a ticket for £4 if you go at a certain time. But I went to see it with like maybe 300 young people from schools in the area and what it kind of meant for a film like that to be portrayed in that way and for it to be consumed en masse in that way had a real sense of community ownership and shared experience. I just think that's an interesting thing that displays what the power of cinema can be and what it really can do in communities. Yeah, and I have to say that the Black Panther experience as a contemporary one was one that brought me back to 
seeing Blade on in the cinema, seeing or becoming aware of Sidney Poitier for the first time and not just him as an actor, but him as what he represented within African-American community, within the civil rights movement in America and how his persona was used all across the world as a symbol of struggle and as a symbol of process and a marker as to where we are in the world and how the world is looking at us and how the world is perceiving us and what we need to change and what part of the conversation we need to address. And I think Black Panther yeah. was the most recent example of that. Yeah. And like, I want to talk about how it influenced your decision to enter that industry and to take it on as a professional, because it's also, I suppose it's also important to talk about the cinema and the difference between American Hollywood cinema and British cinema, because I've also got quite vivid memories of, British films that I watched when I was a bit older. This is like maybe late teens when I'm starting to become aware of the fact that actors are actual people with jobs as opposed to just like characters saying lines and how that would then lead to me maybe doing something like that. And I remember I really talked to you about seeing a film that you did called Fallout when I was 17 or 18. I actually watched that on television, not in the cinema but you would describe it as a film really it was I, I remember it as a 90 minute film yeah it was a television film but it was definitely a film and I remember watching that I remember watching Kid Hood. I remember watching various British films made by black filmmakers that were starting to do the thing of portraying the world that I felt that I was living in. So film suddenly started moving away from just pure escapism or that's what can happen in fantasy to, oh, wow, this is a delve into the world that we live in and the places that we go and the London that I know or the people that I talk to or the struggles that I face. And yeah, I just wanted to ask you, I suppose the position that British cinema played in your timeline of appreciating film was it always dominated by american film or did british film was that always a big thing in your life or do you remember there was a time where the dial shifted from one to the other it was just because of my generation really and what was happening at that particular time the americans made movies and that was an industry and i didn't even know that it was an industry at that time i just lied to you um, it was just that the Americans made movies. It was Hollywood. It was America. They made almost every movie film you went to see was an American one. To the point where even when you were watching a British film, you weren't always aware that you were watching a British film because you'd been so processed that everything was American. It was weird because Sidney Poitier has influenced so many people who don't know that they were influenced by Sidney Poitier. Do you know what I mean? Because he, he was an actor who wasn't really allowed to be an actor because he was always playing an idea. He was always being projected in more ways than one. He was always being projected of this is the acceptable face. Mm. This is the guy we like. This, and he was always forced to be basically the good Negro, even when he fought against it what he was representing almost overshadowed the actor mm. that he could have been and possibly sh should have been and was, really. Mm. Although he was born in Miami, he spent most of his life growing up in Bermuda. So he had a Caribbean sensibility and grew up with a Caribbean accent. And he did a film in the UK called To Sir With Love with Lulu. <laughs> 
Uh, really weird but it was a great song and it is a great song to serve with love that Lulu sings and I was a bit of a not so much a Lulu fan but my brother fancied her so I tried to fancy her too (laughs) and she was in it and I think because it was about a black teacher in the 1960s going to work in a predominantly white rough east end school in the middle of a rough east end community they showed it to us at school and again, it's a, it was something that had been made 10, 20 years before I was born, but it was still around. And we saw it at school. And if you made any noise when I was growing up of, you know, I want to be an actor, if you were black, they would go, oh, you mean like Sidney Poitier? He was like your go-to person that they would go, you mean like him? Everybody would say that. So I suppose the first British film I came across and I was like, I recognised that. The school looked like the school that I had gone to. It was one of those generic post-war 1950s, 1960s primary school. The kids were kids that I kind of recognised, kids that I would have gone to school with. And, you know, the story was a very obvious story of they hated him and then they grew to like him and respect him and cherish him. And then they left school and went out into the world and he felt better about himself. And... um, but it it was a film that just has, has kept coming back for me, really. And it was the start of recognising films made in the UK and noticing actors. And it would be actors like Michael Caine was unavoidable because he was unapologetically British and was a movie star. And then later Gary Oldman and Bob Hoskins. I mean, it took a while... And Ray Winstone, when he, when he did Scum, um, I think that was another cinematic moment where everybody had to see the film in the cinema. You had to go and, and see Scum. And Alan Clark as a filmmaker and the start of the Scott brothers with Ridley Scott and Tony Scott and the early stuff that they were doing. You were making a connection to actually those guys up there doing that from the same place as you there was a transition between from the same place as you to looking like you yeah I suppose one of the more successful more globally recognized famous British directors famous for portraying a version of what it is to be British or English maybe is Guy Ritchie and you obviously worked on I think that's his second major film Snatch I remember that as, again, being a moment where these are British filmmakers being unapologetically British and taking it onto an international market or to an international viewership. What was it like as a performer, I suppose, or venturing into the film world in that kind of environment? It was really exciting. I think I told you this, that it was a bit of a whirlwind because we got the scripts on the Wednesday. They'd been prepping and organising it for months, obviously, before then. But the two characters that myself and Robbie G ended up playing up until the very last minute were being played by guys who weren't trained or familiar actors. And the producers were trying to... Because every time Guy rewrote the script... He made those parts more and more integral to the story. And the producers were trying to convince him that he might want to go with more experienced actors in those in those particular roles. And he wouldn't listen until the Wednesday before filming. So we got the scripts on Wednesday. We read for them, me and Robbie being the first two in. 
We read for them on the Wednesday afternoon. We got offered them on the Thursday. We were in costumes on the Friday and we were shooting on the Saturday. And it just was, a, and our first scene was in the back of a caravan with Jason Fleming and Brad Pitt. And that was day one. So it was a bit of a whirlwind. It took us a while to land on our feet. I hadn't been to LA at that point and didn't really have any interest in going to LA at, at that point. But it was filled with top list actors. There was Dennis Farina, there was Benicio Del Toro, there was Rada, there was well-known actors all around it, but also all around the production. Within Carol Churchill at the Old Vic Theatre in London. And if I'm not mistaken, Lenny, it's been a bit of a while since you've been on stage. It's been more than a couple of weeks, let's just say. It's been more than a couple of weeks, yes. It's been nearly 16 years. I wonder what, and now we're starting to get into the run of it, how does it feel having worked so consistently in television and film, both in this country and in America? How does it feel to, number one, be back here for a period of time and to be working as a performer in a slightly different medium? What is the reality of that for you right now? It's a very weird thing that happens because when I'm, particularly when I'm back in the States, there is not necessarily kudos, but there is conversation. There is a perception of me, uh, even now, at least once a week, someone will mention the fact that either you came up through theatre, you're primarily a theatre actor. The notion, the perception of me as someone who, for whom theatre, if not now, was in my defining years, part of how I define myself as an actor. It comes up, a director will go, well, you'll know as a theatre actor, blah, 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 blah. Or they'll reference something and they go, oh, of course, because you've probably done that because you're a theatre guy. So that comes up quite a lot. And conversely, particularly this time around, and partly because I'm doing a play and it's been a while that I'm doing a play, there's a lot of reference to film and television's Lenny James. So it's... Um, <laughs> It's a it's a weird it's a weird balance that that changes depending on which side of the Atlantic I'm on. I think we had a conversation about it quite early on. I mean, particularly if you're doing episodic television, it's slightly different in film. On episodic television, you've kind of got to make decisions about your character very quickly. I mean, you can do your homework and you can talk to the director and you can do all of that, but on set, the immediate choices of which way you're going to go or which way you're not going to go you don't have too many swings at it. Even though I remember four weeks of rehearsals as being a short amount of time to be rehearsing a play, it is so much longer than you get on film or television. So it felt like a luxury this time around. And if there was anything I felt coming back to the stage that was a recalibrating in any way, it was that. Mm. It was trusting the rehearsal process, trusting the time you get to form your character, to create your character, mm. and we get previews, so we get to test it in front of an audience. It felt like a luxury. Mm. It felt like a real gift. And that I missed without knowing I'd missed it. Do you think it'll be another 16 years before you do it again? I don't know. What are you doing next? I don't know. <laughs> you can't just follow me wherever I go, right? <laughs> I don't see why not. It sounds like a plan. And I think I might... I might Try it out. Why not? I think it would be a great shame 
if it was another 16 years. I know often there are logistical blocks that stop one from being able to work in, in different mediums, but having worked opposite you, it's something that comes so naturally to you and something that you clearly enjoy and relish so much that I think it would be a great shame both to yourself and to audiences here in America, wherever, if um, if it took that long again for you to, to return. It probably won't, but ideally I'd like to get back to what it was when I was UK-based, the career or the variety in the career that you've got, which is you do some telly, you do a play, you do a film, you do a play, you do some voiceover stuff, you do a play, you do... I mean, all of those things are possible for me. It's been harder to do the plays in between, and that's the bit that I've really missed, but that must be enjoyable for you. Is that, to a certain extent, the ideal? Yeah, for me, I feel very fortunate to be given that opportunities in... In the different realms, I very much feel like the journey is one of learning. So every time I come back to a play, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And every time I finish doing a play, I feel like a better actor, a better performer, a better artist. And hopefully that feeds into the work that I do on screen as well. But then I return to set and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So it's like (laughs) every reset point is punctuated by like a panic attack, really. But I do think it's part of like building a portfolio of work allows your work to become deeper and more resonant and more you, more yours. And I feel like that's definitely a big reason why I come back to the theatre a lot. But anyway, look, we've been talking for far too long now. I, I can't remember a single thing I've said. But I suppose the thing is, it's just always such a pleasure talking to you and picking your brains about this. And really, honestly, I could have talked to you for another hour and a half, mainly about the... You have the, been at it for a minute. ...the Kung Fu films that you were watching in... <laughs> On a Saturday night. I was trying to remember the title, but they're also, I don't know, I was going to say Fist of Fury, but Fist of Fury is an obvious one. Everybody knew that one. But it was things like they would shake on your chest and then you would die from the inside. (laughs) It was was crazy stuff. And I wasn't hugely into them, but it was a thing to do on a Saturday night and hang out with your boys. And I had a couple of mates who were bang into it. That used to be one of the things you could do on a Saturday night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see you this Saturday night. We'll see if we can get a late night viewing at the uh, Curzon or something after the show. <laughs> at the Curzon. <laughs> there used to be a cinema. I remember when my missus, who was like a diehard smoker, like one of the last smokers left on the planet. And I think it was, was it the Notting Hill Coronet or something like that? At one point was the last cinema in London where you could smoke. So for a bit, the only time I would go and see a film or she would come and see a film with me, <laughs> would be there because she could smoke upstairs. It's un- unheard of now. I mean, it's just... Absolutely. The things that you used to do. The Scandalous. Fa- yeah, it was crazy. Scandalous, mate. Anyway, good talking to you. I'm going to see you in 10 minutes anyway, so uh, behave yourself. Yeah, you are. And I'll see you soon. I'll see you in a minute. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Biffa Podcast. If you've just found us, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And check out our back catalogue too, for loads more tales of cinematic upbringing. Our last episode had Nikolai Costa-Waldo, that's Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones, talking with Jonas Poor Rasmussen, director of the Biffa award-winning animated documentary, Flea. It's a very lovely conversation. You should stick it on right now. Thanks for listening. The Biffa podcast is a Little.Studios production for Biffa. It's hosted by me, Jake Cunningham, and I'm one of the producers as well along with Harold McShill and Ellie Aitken. The show is edited by Content is Queen.